The following lecture is from a course called Psychology 3717 uh, Memory. It's for the winter term of 2019. By the way, how the hell did it ever get to be 2019? Anyway, hope you like the class and uh, see ya. I took a trip the other day. section. This excites me greatly. I spent the morning setting up my TV and my Xbox in my office again. It's, it was a great moment. I walked into my office today and I was like, it's done. They even hung up some of the posters back up, which was great. Yeah, it was very, very kind. I mean, I realized I expected it to take a long time. <coughs> like when they said the mailroom would be they had a sign up that said the mail room has been moved temporarily until May when someone's crashing in June, scratching in July, scratching in August. Anyway, so this is not going to be a fun topic. This is sad, most of this stuff. So it's fascinating, and we learn a lot about, I remember if you took creative behavior with me, you know that I sort of harp on the theme of learning a lot about function from dysfunction, and that's one of the things we're going to notice today is that you learn a lot about how something works by looking at how it doesn't work, basically. So we're going to learn, learn a lot about memory by thinking, by finding out about, the, about how, cases where memory doesn't work. So here's a guy. I sound like Guy Fieri on Diners, Dragons, and Dust. Here's a guy who lost his memory, and he's taken it to Flavortown. So he doesn't remember how to make a burrito. So. Why am I doing that? Don't know. So this is because this case is really sad. I mean, I'll probably make a lot of really bizarre jokes because these things are all sad. This is the case of a guy named Charles D'Souza. He was found on a beach in Hawaii. That sounds nice, except he had no idea who he was, except that he was Charles D'Souza. He had no ID on him, <coughs> um, and he had no... All he... he, he couldn't tell you anything about him, except he said that he was from North Manchester on Long Island. His name's actually Philip, and the way you pronounce this is, is there's some I looked it up the other day. It's Katai. I always say Kutahar, but I don't think that's correct. So his name's Phil. <laughs> um, this was a smart guy, too. This was a sort of rising star sort of person. He had worked um, as uh, an aide to a rather prominent U.S. senator. He had worked for the uh, U.S. Foreign Service. Uh, there's some speculation that he probably worked for the CIA. So, and you can see he's a young guy. He's in his 30s there, early 30s. So he says, I... Uh, I, all I can remember is th this is my name, which it isn't Charles D'Souza. No one knows where he gets that from. And he's from this town called North Manchester in Long Island. He thought the year was 1988. Or sorry, yes, 1988, but it's actually 86 at the time. It's crazy. So this is pretty rare. He's, he's got his, his episodic memory, and a lot of his semantic memory is gone. 
It turns out, in fact, he lived in a town in Long Island. There's no such town as Long uh, as North Manchester, but he did. He lived on Manchester Street in a town on Long Island. The story was picked up by the media. There's a New York Times story that I've uh, linked on the webpage, so you can read that. Uh, and this is we're trying to figure out who the heck he was. And a detective and a sort of investigator in New York saw it, even though he was in Hawaii. And North Manchester, that's not a place. And then he tried to find out about missing people. This guy disappeared a lot, apparently, for his work, which makes people again think that he worked in the CIA. Um, but he also worked like on aid projects. So he would go to places like Haiti. He spent a lot of time in Haiti. Uh, he went to, he was going to Brazil. And he told his mother, well, it's not a lot of, you know, what, what, mail from Brazil is going to be kind of spotty and I'm not going to make phone calls. So don't be surprised if I don't contact you. So she was, wasn't really concerned, but eventually she saw the picture in the paper, got contacted the investigator, they figured out who it was. He ends up talking to his mom. He has no idea who his mom is. He goes from talking on the TV all the time in Hawaii, like, can you please help me? He finds out who he is and he doesn't want to talk anymore because he's kind of freaked out. Right? The other thing is we don't know when he got, when the memory problems start. So he ends up in Hawaii, but he had worked a lot in Haiti. He doesn't know, remember, that he's working in Haiti. So there's speculation that maybe he confused Hawaii and Haiti and bought a ticket to Hawaii, even though he was going, he thought he was going, he was supposed to go there instead of Haiti. It's very confusing. Poor guy. This is pretty rare. And nobody really knows what caused this. That's the other thing. You think at first maybe he took a horrible beating or something. It didn't look like it was that. Why didn't he have any ID? Maybe he lost it. Maybe it was. Maybe he was robbed. Maybe he had a case of uh, some kind of encephalitis or something. So no one really knows what happened with this guy, as far as like why this happened. Um, he eventually keeps a logbook of each day and is able to function. So he writes down everything that happens every day and uses that basically as external storage, right? So instead of using his memory, because it's, it's shot, he now can just write stuff down in a little notebook. Excuse me. And because of that, he's able to say, oh, okay, I did this, I did this, I did this. It's a very sad tale, because especially, and it's not, I don't want to sound like other people have more, more or less value depending on how smart they are, but this was not a dumb guy. This was not a, a guy who was in any kind of trouble with the law. This was not some kind of case of, this was a real rising star. There are pictures of him. Eventually, people dug up pictures of him with like Bob Dole, who ran for president in 1996. He had, like I said, worked in the US Foreign Service. Went to an Ivy League university. So it's really a sad tale. No one really knows what happened here. That's the sad part. And I haven't seen any follow-up work on him. Uh, it's all just media reports. No one's really done, like it's not like HM or KC where his, his family has said, well, something good can come of this. Get him into a lab and we can study him. That really hasn't happened here, which is, I mean, I, I respect the guy's privacy, but as far as that goes, 
but frankly, it would be really interesting to find out more about him and what the real problem is. So that's just by way of introduction. So when we talk about amnesics generally, we can learn about all kinds of things about memory, and they've led to a lot of discoveries about memory. The episodic semantic distinction that Talvey talked about here in the paper that I know you guys have read is partly grew out of some of these results with amnesics. Uh, Larry Squire's idea of procedural versus declarative memory grows out of work with amnesics. It's not the only thing, but it gives you the idea that if one thing is spared, then something else isn't. Right? Implicit and explicit memory. Um, I talked about Clapavent and the pinprick earlier in the course, and then you look at things like HM being able to learn mirror tracing without remembering it, actually showing normal word fragment completion. A lot of these things show up, implicit versus explicit. Like they're, they're sort of evidence for theoretical ideas and also that's the word I'm looking for, kind of uh, grist for the mill. Makes you sort of understand, oh, I, I, I see what'll happen here. It probably works like this. So we learn a lot about functions and dysfunction. Even the phonological loop versus visual spatial sketch pattern. <coughs> so Baddeley's really early work on this, when he discovered this idea, brought this up. There were cases of people that had normal phonological loops, but their visual-spatial sketch pads basically non-existent, and vice versa. So you get these things that are called double dissociations, where you get one case that only affects phonological loop, and another case that only affects visual-spatial sketch pad. <clears throat> okay? All right. So there are problems generally, or some things we can, issues really about looking at memory disorders. The first one's a taxonomy issue. So because each case is different and because they're not done in a lab, right? They're, they're not, and this isn't like when we lesion rats. These are natural causes or you know accidents, bumps on the head, whatever. But they're all done differently. So we have to look at symptoms and see are symptoms similar in, in a given um, group of patients, then we can say they have a similar disorder but they may be caused by different things. That's the issue, right? So it may be that patient A has this bump on the head over here, patient B has a bump on the head over here, but their symptoms are the same. And when their symptoms are the same, that's when we have to look and say, okay, we're gonna, or there's a question, are we going to classify them as having the same disorder or not? Right? There's going to be individual differences. There are individual differences between all of us in this room, and none of us have memory disorders. On things like proactive interference, the kind of errors of intrusion that happen, like things that just come to mind, um, errors of omission, mnemonics that they can use, ma uh, mass versus distributed practice, how that affects their memory. So while we can look at commonality of symptoms, we also have to say, oh, individual differences. And where do individual differences, sort of these quantitative differences, when does that become a qualitative difference and we say it's a taxonomic difference? I don't have an answer to that question. And researchers don't either. 
it's just a, it's, it's an issue we have to think about. Now, interpretation of memory effects in these cases. So let's say we have no levels of processing effect in the patient. This is a pretty common thing because if the patient has, so you give them a list of words, and if I gave you a list of words that had you rate pleasantness versus had you count the number of syllables, you'd remember But that doesn't happen typically with amnesics like, say, KC or HM. Does it mean that semantic encoding is actually gone? So is it an encoding thing? Does it mean they just can't remember the semantic encoding that they did? Or does it mean it's forgotten? So did it not get in? Was it encoded wrong? Or is it gone? And we don't know. It's, that's a hard thing to figure out. Now, one of the issues, another issue, I shouldn't call this problems, I should call this issues. Um, applications can come out of this to help people who, with, with memory problems. And I just talked about, you know, uh, Kudahar there and his case um, using a logbook. Some of the earliest adopters of PDAs, you know, Palm Pilots back in the day, were, were neuropsychologists working with people with amnesia because you can write stuff down. And it's even easier today with a phone. I saw a documentary about 20 years ago about patients with uh, episodic memory issues and how they were writing things down in these crazy new devices that were really expensive. And now everybody carries one of these devices and they're way more powerful. All you have to do is teach somebody to talk to them. So, I think it's, this is something that we can look at and say, how can we fix this? We can't fix it. How can we help people? And the applications tend to be things, well, like applications, like apps, right? So the biggest thing here, it all comes down to, it's a lack of control. We're scientists. We want control over variables, and we aren't going to have them in these situations. We can't. Um, we just can't. There's the rare case like HM where it's an operation, so it's a really well-done lesion. And in fact, you can now look at HM's brain. It's online. You can look at slices. Right? When HM was, when, when MRIs were first developed, they, people said, look, let's get this guy on MRI. But the issue was, well, what if on the off chance there's some surgical, like something's left in there, something ever so small, then we just rip his brain apart, right? So it turns out that wasn't done. Scoville was a great, you know, great uh, surgeon, but there's always that possibility, and there was no record kept if, if there was something missing or not, so th that wasn't done. But now that the, he died, you can actually look at slices of his brain alone. Okay, so it's all case studies. This is what we have to rely on. They are thankfully rare, um, because then we have This is usually an accident or a stroke. <coughs> now and then it is, well, the only case I really know of when it's a, was done on purpose was HM, and that was done with the best of intentions. That wasn't done because somebody, like the Scoville was like Dr. Mengele or something. He was, he was trying to do the right thing. 
I mean, for tumors, it depends on the tumor itself. So if you've got a tumor that is um, spreading out a lot, it's got a lot of legs, as they say, uh, they don't take those out. Yeah. They just try to kill those with radiation. Um, if, it's a, if it's a tumor called a meningenoma, which is a much more, if, for people in this room, that's the one you're going to get until you get older. Um, that's just below the meninges, yeah. and that can just be taken out. Yeah. And it's, I'm not saying it's not dangerous, but the survival rate of well into your 70s kind of thing is about 50 odd percent. Like, it's not a big deal, well, comparatively. Whereas a glio, uh, glioblastoma, yeah. that my dad had, you're going to die. Like, it's just, you could kill you. Six month uh, survival rate is for like less than 1% after being diagnosed. Like, it's, it's a horrible thing. Yeah, if, if you're going to die, like, you're just not going to live to be Every, and it's interesting because that's what John McCain had, that's what Ted Kennedy had, and every time, that's what Paul Dewar had, he's leading politicians guy. And every time you hear people have one of these, they, they talk about how they're going to fight it, and I always think they're thinking, no, they're not. They're going to die. And I, personal experience, that's what killed my father. And, but the operations themselves, when they're done, people are just way better at stuff now because we have better imaging. Mm -hmm. But I know when they, with my father, for a... Um, it was a quality of life thing near the end of his life. They said, we're just going to take all, out all we can because we haven't managed to kill it. It's not going to happen. So we're going to do what they called it a debulking operation, which is just take it out. That still took 16 hours. That took 16 hours. And I mean, with one of the top neuro-oncologists literally in the world doing the, the operation. Afterwards, I was talking to him. I said, Doc, how do you stay awake during that? He said, I take breaks. <laughs> You turn it over to somebody else for a while, but yeah, you take breaks. Um, and, you know, he was completely drained from that. The thing is, we're better at it now. Because I remember I asked him, because there was a, a weird behavioral change in my father after the operation. And I said, did you, like, take, you know, just do some weird lesion to his amygdala as well? He's, like, really angry. He said, we were right near there, but no. He said, but, and it turned out that was a side effect of the anesthesia. And he said sometimes people wake up like that even after just long operations. Because my dad woke up and he was lying in the hospital and I went to see him. And the attending physician there said, uh, yeah, we've got him restrained. I said, why? He said, because he keeps ripping the staples out of his head. I said, oh, okay, that's a good yeah. reason. Because my father was convinced when he woke up that people were trying to kill him. Yeah. And uh, he also had ripped the uh, IP. And uh, I said to him, he looks at me, I said, what are you doing, Dad? He goes, trying to kill me. And he used to use only that type of statement very intrinsic. And I said, they're not, they're trying to help you. He said, no. And he looks down at the thing in his arm. I said, um, you ripped that out of your arm, the, the IV. He said, no, 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 hang on a sec, yes. Which <laughs> <laughs> was the funniest thing, because he was mostly speaking in single sentences, but hang on a sec was like a single word. Right? Uh, he also was able to swear, no problem. Like, things that I would not repeat, and like, I'll say the F word in class, but I'm not repeating the things he said. They were very creative, however. Very creative. And then a couple days later, I, I went to him, and he was like, he wasn't, they had it all bandaged up in that. And then he's like, uh, he says, it's, it's itchy. I said, well, they, they, Dad, they put staples in your head. He said, no. I took out my phone, took a picture. I said, see? He said, holy shit. <laughs> so, but the thing is, 
every time that they did stuff that was somewhat invasive as far as you know, going in there, they're doing this now. There's an MRI before. Um, they've got a roadmap of the individual's brain. So they're probably better at it than they used to be. Yeah. I'm sure they're better at it, actually. Yeah, the, the weird good thing that came with my dad being sick, if I can say it was a good thing, was I, I came up with tons of examples. Uh, and I think, I'm quite sure there's no afterlife, but if there were, my father would find it very funny that, he, that that was how he got to university, basically. So. You can always ask me questions about that stuff, too, because it doesn't, um, it's a long time ago, and like I said, I think my dad would think it was funny. All right, SP. Here's a case. Uh, SP had, I think this is a stroke, yeah, stroke patient. Uh, medial, yeah, both medial temporal lobes, left hippocampus, lots of surrounding area. Uh, not the amygdala, so there's not going to be any big effects on emotion. So this is a pretty nasty stroke. SP wakes up and couldn't find um, his way back to the hospital, his hospital room. So we'd leave the room, because they like, yeah, you can walk around. And uh, then it turned out, where's my room? Okay, so that's pretty intense, right? Because if you just get up to go for a walk and you come back and you can't find your room, and couldn't recognize anybody except his wife and kids. So that's people you see all the time. That makes some sense. That's like a semantic memory task, right? I know that's my wife. I know those are my children. Yeah, and my, my dad's, um, as to tie this in a bit, my dad's uh, tumor, which was the size, eventually the size of a small baseball. Um, was left temporal, and he couldn't recognize, he, he had a lot of trouble with language, he could recognize people but couldn't name them a lot of times. He, he called the day before he died, he said to me, I want to go, go, uh, go in that other room, is it the kitchen? Yes. And talk to your mother, or your fake mother, I said, who's my fake? I said, Isabel? He said, yes. <laughs> go, make, go make a drink. I said, yeah, oh, we should oh, let's go invent a cocktail. He said, even like a dirty foot. Like, That's not a drink, Dad, but I'm about to go invent the dirty foot. And then I figured out he meant rusty nail, which is pretty great, because he would never drink anything with scotch. So the same kind of thing. Dad would recognize people but uh, that were close to him, so family members. But I know when other people came to visit him in the hospital, he's like, I don't know. And of course, there's no filter at that point. Who the fuck are you? <laughs> Which is, <laughs> is kind of like how he was normally. Um, so SP was asked a lot about, he couldn't, SP couldn't name objects. Again, this was something my father had trouble with. This is a very typical, quick and dirty neurological task, neuropsychological task, because he just, because physicians have their car keys with them and a pen. So two things that you often hear, they'll take out a set of keys and say, what are these? And if you can't name them, that's a semantic memory issue. The interesting thing there is that you can often name what they do. And I remember, again, doing this with my dad, saying, what are these, Dad? And he said, those are things to open doors. I said, yeah, they're called what? Well, for locks. Keys? Yeah, keys. So what are they? For opening doors, <laughs> he said, no, you know, and what's this? That's for writing things down. Uh-huh, what's it called? You know, it's for writing. Is it a pen? Yeah, it's a pen. 
But if you said, is it a chair? No, it's not a chair. It's a thing for writing. It's, they couldn't name objects. So this is what SP had the same problem. So there's a semantic memory issue. There's also some fascinating semantic memory stuff. SP was asked about some stuff about the world. This is a case in the late 80s. SP had no idea World War II happened. When SP was asked, what is World War II? Hitler? No. SP was asked, because it was pretty recent and this was in Europe, have you heard about the Chernobyl nuclear disaster? He's like, yeah, I heard that was bad. Like, that's all he got. I've heard it was bad. SP couldn't even learn new tasks, could not learn mirror tracing, for example. Unlike, say, Asia. That's a lot of damage, though, right? Both temporal lobes. So SP's got anterograde and retrograde amnesia, can't remember stuff from before, and can't learn new stuff. I will say that there are more cases now of stroke patients who survive. Um, there's a lot more, it's, it, the technology's better. When people go in for having a stroke, they get you in an MRI, they find out where it is, and they stop the bleed. Like, that's a little easier now used to be when you had a stroke or like an aneurysm break, you just, it's like, well, we'll see what happens. It doesn't work that way. So there are more cases of people who live through these things. Uh, so this is similar in some respects to KC, in fact, a lot, except KC could learn, the damage is actually similar. Uh, KC could learn new associations. KC could learn Implicit, if you do implicit memory, like uh, word fragment completion was, was better than, was looked normal. Okay. The case of Clive Weary, this is a sad case. And you can watch, there's a YouTube video I've linked to, you should watch that, it's a BBC documentary. He was sort of a celebrity, this guy, in the UK. He was actually the musical director for the royal wedding between uh, Diana and Charles, the one that eventually... And he had no memory of that. <laughs> he just disappeared. So it was encephalitis, which is a nasty thing to get. Um, he had pervasive amnesia, so everything was gone. Didn't remember his past life of being, like I said, a celebrity. He, was, he would host uh, shows on BBC about uh, musical things. Right, so he was a, he's kind of a TV star of sorts. But he was like a public intellectual about music. People knew who he was. So he had semantic and episodic memory impairment. Um, though, uh, and this is temporal lobe dilation, so his temporal lobes basically blew up. Like they expanded a whole lot. His hippocampus, whoops, I should go back, sorry. His hippocampus was destroyed by this. And, uh, said, yes. He could learn new semantic things and facts, but he would never remember learning them. He eventually worked, uh, he was sort of in a care facility at a hospital, and he eventually ended up uh, being able to 
coordinate like vacation times for different medical students. Like he ended up getting a job in the office there. So he could do things, do simple tasks like that, or quite actually that simple. And some of his musical ability was maintained, but he had no idea how he knew how to play the piano. He could play, it wasn't nearly as good as he used to be, like he was a really good musician, but he could play better than the average, you know, person. Yes, well put, exactly. But it's, it's still damaged, right? Because he couldn't play like he used to be able to play, right? But it's still, there's obviously something maintained because he could still do it. So watch that documentary, it's fascinating because, and his family was like, look, again, if the world can learn something about amnesia, he's famous, study him, make a documentary about him, do scientific work about him, something good can come of this, which is, to me, just amazing. I, I, I don't know if I could do that. So you can actually look at, read his diary, and this is, these are actual things from his diary. Because he, he learned a, uh, a trick, which is write everything down. This is the logbook approach. They don't fill up the, what's his name? Whose name I can't pronounce. 831, now I'm really completely awake. Then he crosses something out, because then he writes something else on 9.06, now I'm perfectly overwhelmingly awake. 9.34, now I am superlatively actually awake. And the, the interpretation here is that he wakes up, he writes it down, and then he's like, oh, I should write down that I'm awake, and he looks and goes, okay, well, I'll cross that out, and I'll make it even more awake. So what he's doing here is he's aware, this is a metacognitive thing, right? He's aware that, oh, I'm... By reading that, I must have already wrote this down. I clearly wrote this down. And strategically, then, the strategy is, I'll make myself look even more awake. Right? So that says something about his metacognitive abilities. Because right? if he didn't have the sort of metacognition, he would just write the same damn thing each time. I'm awake, I'm awake, I'm awake. But apparently, if you look at his diary, it's full of these repetitions. And then changing adjectives. I'm making tea. I'm still making tea. I'm totally making tea. <laughs> tea is great, and it's a thing that I'm making right now. Like, it's like that, which is pretty great, because, again, it shows this, the metacognitive, metacognition is still there. Okay, so some general patterns about memory issues. So there's, I, I mentioned before retrograde amnesia. That's losing past memories. That's not that common, though we've seen some cases here where it happens. The most common thing is that the past memories are maintained, like with HM and KC, or uh, not KC, with HM, and you, don't, you can't form new ones. These are usually new explicit memories. So the cases you always see on TV shows and in movies, right? this is especially true in, I would call it soap opera is the word, Daytime drama is people have retrograde amnesia, which doesn't usually happen. I don't know where I am. I'm in a fugue state. By the way, you know that fugue thing? It's interesting. People walk south. They go to warmer weather. <laughs> no one ends up in a fugue state in Yellowknife. There's something interesting there. 
So, and usually we're talking about explicit memories here. The, the spared thing is usually priming, so implicit memory, things like that. Learn, the ability to learn new skill. Not always, we saw the SPKs there, because we all that. But the most common, I think, performance pattern we see is retrograde amnesia, but the spared implicit and procedural memory. Unlike, say, KC, who, for example, uh, like I told you, he used to tinker with, his, his hobby was tinkering with Volkswagen engines. So this was something he did. Uh, and you could say, how do you change uh, you know, the plugs on a 1973 Jeep? And he'd explain it to you. And then you'd say, how do you know that? And his response was, I don't know. Doesn't everyone know that? Though Casey, again, had some metacognitive ability, he could say, I, don't, I can't remember things when they're told to me. The best example, by the way, in popular media is the movie Memento. It's very well done about how the guy has, uh, can't form new memories, but he has spared function and he's learned to write things down. It's also just a great movie. Things that are typically spared are working memory. Um, though we'll tell you a couple cases in a moment where it's, excuse me, not. So you can hold a conversation with most people that have some kind of impairment on a topic, right? So while my father's uh, brain tumor affected memory, I could talk to him about stuff. We would talk about hockey because uh, it was during the playoffs in 2008 when he was sick. And I remember watching a game with him and him saying to me, Who's that? And I'd say, I remember him saying, who's, uh, oh, right. Who's number, uh, number 31? I said, it's Carey Price, our goal. No. No, 31 is, and I forget who the hell he said, but it was some guy who played with the Canadians in the 70s. I said, Dad, a lot of time has passed. <laughs> I don't think you seem to remember. And he's like, uh, you'd see 11. He'd go, that's Koivu. Yeah, oh, good, you got that one. But he's like, who's... Who's that guy? Who's that? There's a lot of that kind of thing going on. He'd remember numbers of players from before. Semantic memory is often spared, though we've seen some cases here where it wasn't. KC could learn new things. He wouldn't remember learning them. So declarative things, which are sort of like, I know this to be true. They're sort of like episodic things, right? So if I tell you, so it's like, I am doing this, I am doing that. Tulting had a method where he restricted errors. Because Tulting was convinced, and well, I shouldn't say was, is, that KC could learn new declarative memories, new episodic memories. And it's like, well, but. Tulling thought that the problem here was basically one of interference. So he would give, present KC with an item of some sort, a word, and then present him with that same word and see if he remembered seeing that word. He said, just say yes or no, like a recognition thing, but there were no 
um, distractors. Okay? There's no, there's no irrelevant information there. And the way we typically test these things is we give you half words you've seen and half words you haven't seen. With Tolving's method of restricting errors, what you're doing is you're presenting one item, and he used pictures, he also used words, and no other items. So even if you were using only the items you've seen, we would show you all of the, the whole list, and that's going to interfere. So instead what Tolving does is he presents the word assassin, because he's Tolving and he loves the word assassin, and then 30 seconds later, do you remember seeing a word? No, I do not. Was this the word? Yes or no? And he actually did better than 50%. He did better than choice. So he could remember some things. This gives us the idea that it's all about, well, not all about, that a lot of the impairment here, some of the impairment, I shouldn't say a lot or anything like that, just some of the impairment is one of interference. Right? The world doesn't work like that. You don't ever have things presented. Here's the thing. Is that the thing? That's not how the world ever works, right? But at least it shows that there's some memory there. Right? Because at first when I read this, I thought, that's not even a memory test. But then I realized, yes, if they say yes or no, and there's nothing else there, it's just an exceedingly simple memory test. Right? And he showed then that he was better than chance. And it's the kind of thing we would often do with, with like we would do that with, a, with, with, with animals. Here's a red light, peck at it. Turn it off. Red light comes back on. If you peck at it and it, was the, it matches the, the, the original light you saw, you get, you get food. But even with, with pigeons, we would also sometimes show them a green light. He wasn't even doing that. It's like, here's the exact item, the ultimate retrieval. So why... Horrible title for a slide. Just why? It's like it was written by a two-year-old. He just goes around going, why? Yeah, but why? Yeah, but why? How about shut up for a while? Um, you're all thinking, I will never do that as a parent. But you do that at some point, don't you? <laughs> it's, it's just the thing. It's always good when there's a parent in the class and I can commiserate. And like, yeah, you're right. At some point, you go, oh, you just. Okay, I'm sorry, but really shut up. Yeah, I need you to stop talking for like, can you, like for five minutes? How long is five minutes? Just see you're doing it again. Yeah. And you hate yourself when you do it, but then you think five minutes of peace. We've got about 40 seconds, but even 40 seconds is better than constant. Anyway. So why do people, like, what's the, what are the characteristics of amnesia? Why do people get amnesia? Not to bump in the head, but what's the issue, right? So it's, it's going to be interference, retrieval, and encoding. It's almost certainly all of these. The Tolving method shows us that part of it's interference. Right? But it certainly could be that there's, there's well, there certainly is an encoding issue, and a, probably a retrieval issue, too. I just, it, maybe stuff gets in there, and it never gets back at it. It probably has something to do with consolidation. So memories. Like, we don't remember, episodically, everything that happens to us. In fact, that would be ex exceedingly unpleasant. Right? I think somebody's doing their paper on people like that. Things where people have too much autobiographical memory. 
you, would, you wouldn't want to live like that. You would wish you didn't remember every single thing all the time. So what we do is we encode stuff, we then consolidate it, and that's probably happening in hippocampus. It may be happening during REM sleep. Like I believe the sample paper on the website is about that topic. So is this about hippocampus sending things out for, for processing? That's not. And this is not something we can easily study. Right? It's something you could study in non-humans very with some difficulty. You can turn hippocampus on and off, for example, which is there's a couple of methods for doing that. One is uh, with a this drug method of doing it, where you actually have these drugs that bind to receptors that you genetically engineered, which is very cool. The other way to do it is just cool it down and heat it up, which is something my daughter's done. Because when you cool down part of the brain, it doesn't work. Can't do that in people. So we're a long way away from knowing exactly what's going on. The notion of consolidation is that hippocampus somehow puts important things together and sends them off for processing. So without a hippocampus, you don't consolidate it's not the stuff doesn't get in, it just doesn't get filed away properly. Okay. Semantic memory issues are fascinating. This is the case of Mrs. P, not Mrs. B who makes the pizza in town, but Mrs. P, and I don't know what she did. Apparently married to Mr. P, who of course was a big stuntman and actor in the 70s. And it was Mr. T. Thank you. Pity the fool that didn't get that reference. So, Mrs. P wakes up after having, I think, a stroke, and uh, it's a temporal lobe issue. And actually, when asked what a cat is, responds with, What on earth is a cat? This is interesting because Mrs. P can say, What on earth is that? So, Mrs. P can speak English just fine. But she doesn't know the meaning of words, but she knows the meaning of words. Like, this is really cool, right? Because <coughs> she can go, I don't know what the hell a cat is. So she knows what, what on earth, she knows what that means. She knows how to say, I don't know what that is, but she doesn't know what that is. <laughs> That's sort of mind-blowing to me. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh. I'm more laughing at the, how amazed I am in cases like this. Um, in these rare cases, episodic memories are fine. This is the double dissociation. So these really strange semantic cases often involve they can remember new things. Like, do you remember yesterday when I asked you what a cat? Yeah, I still don't know what cats are. That was weird when you asked what a cat is. Like, imagine that. So, whereas KC could learn a, a new fact about the world. We, there's data on that uh, HM2. They wouldn't remember learning them. Mrs. P's like, I know. It's so weird that I don't know what a cat is. I still don't know what it is. I think I'll never know what a cat is. A lot of times, cases like this, people can name. Uh, they can't name. Let me make sure I get this right. They're not able to name living things like cats and people bears and platypuses. But inanimate objects are fine. So what's a stapler? Well, it's, you know, anything that 
together, you put the staple through the paper, right? What's a cat? I don't know. Weird, right? Well, that says something about how things are stored and like how the network works, I guess. Okay, then there's issues sometimes with people who have, remember how, how when you looked at the, the, the working memory thing, you went, I don't know, man, that seems a little bit much. Well, it turns out a lot of the, the original stuff that Baddeley was doing was based on case studies. So that's, you know, give us, give him the notion. So there's cases of people with intact phonological loops and visual spatial sketch pads, sketch pads that don't work and vice versa. And there are cases of executive function not working properly. So there's a case of um, ELD has right parietal uh, and occipital damage, so here, and has basically no visual spatial sketch pad, but a phonological loop that works just fine. Can you say the details for him? So he's right parietal and occipital damage, and he has no visual spatial ELD, elder. And case PV has left hemisphere damage generally from a CVA, a cardiovascular, um, basically uh, a stroke type thing. Um, his visual spatial sketch pad is fine, his phonological loop is gone. So there's a couple of ways we can test these things. Also, people with frontal lobe damage sometimes end up with their executive functioning being hurt really badly. So there's a couple of ways you can test this. One of them is, this guy come up or not? Okay, there. Um, this is called the Wisconsin card sort task. So what you do is you present the subject with these four cards, and then they're given another card. So in this case, they're, they've, they're, they've got the red circle, two green stars, three blue squares and four yellow plus signs. And then they're given a card with two plus signs. And they're asked, does this belong with these? Okay. Now, you're saying, how? Well, we make up the rules. So I could make up a very simple rule. It has plus signs. Uh, it has more than, or, or, you know, or it's red, or something. I can make a simple rule that says, if there's red, it belongs. If there's plus signs, now we can't say plus signs don't belong because that would belong. So let's let's go with just with color. That's an easy one. If there's a red thing, it works. We don't tell them the rule. They, we just say, does that belong? And when you first do a Wisconsin card sort, you go, I don't know. I'd like you to guess. So if you guess no, you say, nope, that one's good. Then you show them another one, and it's, I don't know, purple. Does that one belong? Another red one, it could be you know, a big red triangle. That would belong. Eventually, you learn the, 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 the rule, the simple rule in this case is, does it have, if it has red, it belongs. So I didn't say that green and blue and yellow don't belong. I just said red belongs. I can make it, if it's red and has two items, it belongs. So I can make this really a complicated set of rules. If it's red and has two items, or it's green and has two items. 
can make it really complicated. So people that have that issue, that they can't do this, it tends to be, we tend to think of that as an executive function problem. One of the cool things, by the way, about this task, no matter what your level of functioning, is that you start getting them right before you can tell me what the rule is. You learn it implicitly. And then you say, oh, I know what it is. But you're basically, it feels like you're guessing, but you're starting to get them right, and that's because you're actually learning the rules. There's another one, the uh, Brooks, is it called Brooks? The Brooks matrix, yeah. This is a way to test your phonological loop versus your visual spatial back. So I tell you the following. Okay, there's a six-dimensional, uh, sort of a three-by-three, three, that's nine, uh, square. I'll draw one up here. It's called a Brooks matrix. And I give you instructions. Bottom right has a 7. So I tell you that. You can't write this down. This is how you do this. Above that, there's a 3. To the right, uh, sorry, to the left of the 3 is a 9. Below the 9 is a 6. Above the total of 15 is a 1. And you just keep going like that until they've got them all put in. And then I say, OK, repeat them back. Withdraw them right out. That sounds hard, but it's actually when you're sitting right down doing the task, you learn how to do it. It's not that difficult. You keep your head, and you start you do rehearsal. That's very spatially loaded. On the other hand, so what can I use for a phonological loop? It's easy. I give you a list of words and have you, or a list of numbers, digit span, and have you reverse digit span, have you recall them back to me immediately in reverse order. That's actually pretty easy. Most of us can do that. If you have no phonological loop, it's, you can't do that. So this is a way to test visuospatial sketchpad versus phonological loop dysfunction. Pretty cool. Okay, it's going to get depressing now. Because this is something that is more likely to affect somebody in the room, a uh, family member, etc. So more than half of all dementia is from Alzheimer's disease. It's two times more common in women than men. This may very well just be a, a function of the fact that women live longer, longer than men. There's a notion that this would happen to everybody if we just lived long enough. Right? So you end up with dementia, so you end up, you know, your, 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 your memory, your cognitive systems disappear. You get these things called neurofib... God, this is a hard word to say. Neurofibrillary tangles and neurolytic plaques. The tangles basically end up and these things tangle around neurons. And you can think of it like they're basically choking neurons. They're destroying neurons. And these amyloid plaques end up getting formed between neurons. 
So people know, like, that's what the disease looks like. So basically, you have massive cell death. And as you know, you know, cortical neurons don't regrow as a rule. And even if they did, you'd have to rewire them. So what happens is you get lesions basically everywhere. It's like you've got holes in your brain. It's called, quote, a cortical dementia, meaning that it, it affects higher cognitive function, but it actually ends up everywhere in your brain. Okay. So you can see this is going to have a lot of memory effects. It's going to have all kinds of other effects in your personality, et cetera. So the affected neurotransmitter here is acetylcholine, and it's a very important in memory. It's especially important in memory in hippocampus. And the weird thing is, almost the almost sinister part of Alzheimer's disease is that it seems like the acetylcholine system is like almost targeted by Alzheimer's disease. Like it, it's, it's insidious. It's like someone made something to try to, and please don't start then a conspiracy theory that someone made it. <laughs> but it looks like someone built it, like the aliens made a horrible pathogen. Except we don't know what the pathogen is. Now, I'm not saying it doesn't affect other systems, because it does. It's, it's a whole brain disorder. So we can think of, for our purposes, what's interesting here are the memory effects. Um, there are episodic effects that show up first. Eventually, semantic effects show up, too. The episodic effects show up, and they're, the, 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 one of the problems here is there is the general cognitive slowing thing we've all we've talked about before. So it looks at first like you're just becoming a forgetful old person. Okay? Oh, I can't believe I forgot where I put my keys. I can't believe I forgot that I turned on the stove. Except forgetting you turn the stove on can cause things to burn down. I mean, it, these are there's a real health issue here even early on. Right? The interesting thing here is that eventually retrieval cues don't help. So unlike the KC approach, where if I show you the item, you get it, it doesn't help. So it's, that's telling you the information never got in in the first place.
Mm -hmm. that's, the, that's the issue, right? You don't even remember doing it until you smell that your house is burning down. Right? I always remind you that uh, there's a scene in The Sopranos where Tony's mother forgets she's cooking mushrooms. And then, oh no, there's a fire, she says on the phone. I've just been watching The Sopranos. <laughs> Along with Mad Men, of course, I'm still watching that. Um, I don't want you to think I'm not uh, consistent. So some interesting data. Uh, LaRue, 1992, um, looking at people with, uh, who have been diagnosed with Alzheimer's, percent corrects, paired associates, that's just giving you, you know, tree bun, things like that. 34.4% um, correct, that's horrible, compared to what you would do, or I would do. Recognition of the of, of items of like just recognition memory five percent correct it's gone. Uh, visual memory actually seeing pictures a little bit better sixty two percent correct, and remembering the gist of a story eighty percent, which is not that different from you and I. But the interesting thing is here. That retrieval cues really aren't helping a lot in with with lists of words. Whereas with us, they well, we get 100. percent If I give you a list of 10 words and I give them the distractor task for five minutes, and then I give you the actual items, you'll get them all right. Non-declared stuff, skills, and all that stuff—they're the last things to go. So this is where you get the case. For example, you'll often see that therapy that's, that's done with people who have. Alzheimer's, things like music, so you get them to sing songs. It's not helping anybody's memory, probably. But what it's doing is it's giving them something to do that isn't, it's helping their quality of life. Right? So you'll see these videos of people who are basically, they don't speak hardly, but then you'll play them songs from when they were younger, and they'll sing along. And they look happy, because they're happy. They're doing something. So that's not, and you'll see the horrible things that are shared from various bad websites about the power of music. It's got nothing to do with the power of music. It's got to do with the fact that people remember how, they remember songs from their childhood. So you'll see, uh, and I've seen one of these videos that was shared on, oh, what was one of them? Oh, Upworthy, remember, you know that one? I blocked all content from that one, because it just, I don't want to be. I like wallowing in my cynicism. <laughs> but uh, I remember seeing this one where they were just uh, people with, Al with Alzheimer's and they were just playing them fun Holly songs. Because they were teenagers in the 50s. And they're all singing, you know, these Buddy Holly songs. It's really touching. Like it's kind of breaking me up right now. And then they, the music goes off and they always go, hmm. But it's got nothing to do with the healing power of music. It's got to do with the fact that people, it's something they can remember how to do. And when they're playing it, they sing along. Because like any of us, you sing along the songs you like. So in 35 years, you'll see old people singing along to songs by, you know, Weezer. <laughs> Not those horrible covers that the actual Weezer songs. <laughs> old people going, I got my hash pipe. You know, it's great. <clears throat> okay, treatment for this. I'm a little optimistic because, well, there's a couple reasons. First of all, um, People, humans, when they put their minds to things, can do amazing things. Secondly, this is a big problem, and there's a whole big cohort of people who are getting really old soon. 
because that's what happens with people. But all the boomers are, that's most of them. They're going to, and they all have this. They're all going to get this. I mean, you're going to have a huge population of older people that have Alzheimer's. So there's going to be a lot of research money poured into this. So one of the treatments are, uh, that's been somewhat successful in slowing things are things that target the cholinergic system because it goes after the acetylcholine system. The biggest, and I, I think there, I honestly think that if it's, it's going to get to a point where if it's stopped, uh, sorry, diagnosed early enough, it will be stopped. But it'll be one of those things that we manage, like uh, diabetes, right? That's my guess. The biggest thing here is the disease doesn't only affect the individual who has it. Uh, there's a big problem with families. I mean, suddenly you are caring for somebody who's your mom or your dad, and then suddenly they are regressing to the point where they're like a baby, except they're a fully grown adult. And so treatment for families is really important, not just treatment for the people that have the disease. Right? So just getting together and talking to other families, um, respite care, just you know, I got to get out of the house for a while. Right? So Dave, yeah. do you also think there would be anything like preventative? <sighs> Until we know what causes it, I doubt it. Because I know like a lot of times we've heard, oh, make sure you floss because the plaque. Like, I've actually heard that. Yeah, see, the plaque, this is interesting because, yeah, does the amount of plaque that you create on your teeth, is that correlated with those plaques? Yes, but the flossing doesn't stop anything happening up here. Mm -hmm. It's just that the two things are correlated. Yeah. Actually, flossing probably doesn't even do anything to your teeth. I've seen those data recently, which is great. It likely does nothing. Yeah. But the, big, the big floss lobby wants you to keep flossing. So. I mean, I still do it because it's like, Whenever you go to a dentist appointment, two days oh, yeah. before you start flossing, it's like you're studying for an exam, <laughs> right? Uh, and they say, do you floss? Yes, I do. <laughs> yeah, if you do it in mass, we're going to practice. <laughs> Small bouts of flossing. But yeah, when I quit smoking, I got to end up getting a cavity from all these damn cough So I switched to sugar three months. Anyway, it's like six years ago. I get off the cough at some point. <laughs> I really do. Um, but it's huge for the family because people have to be able to get out of the house, right? And again, not that my dad had Alzheimer's, but my, my dad had a degenerative brain condition and there was, my mom couldn't get out of the house, you know? When I visit on weekends, it'd be like, which I did about every second weekend for like six months, um, got a lot of air miles out of that. It'd be like, just get out, go, here, mom, here, here here's, here's like 100 bucks, go, go to a, movie. Just get out of the house. I'll hang out with that, you know? Because it was impossible. So I can't even begin to fathom what it's like having a family member in this situation. Like it's, it must be, you know, horrifying. Uh, there's some possibility here with using NGF, neural growth factor, um, which you know, when one neuron synapses onto the other, it releases NGF to stop neurons from dying. So there's some hope there. I don't think it'll ever be reversed. I think treatments that will control or stop are going to be the, the, the thing. Just because of how you'd have to rewire our brain. And that's not coming anytime soon or ever, probably. You know, Star Trek be damned. I don't think that's happening. So the key thing here, really, more than anything almost, is respite care for the family. And then care for people 
in facilities where they're treated well and all that kind of stuff. And I'm sure this is hard for somebody in the room because I'm sure somebody's been touched by this. I haven't been, but I'm sure it's always the case that somebody has a grandmother, grandfather, or whatever, father, mother. So conclusions. Um, so <laughs> a lot of hope here. This is sad. I mean, there's some coping skills that can be taught, things like using a phone, using uh, lists, writing things down. There is some hope there. But as far as like actual cures for amnesia, no, those don't exist. And they can't because they involve rebuilding a brain. That's not going to happen. Because again, even if I could get your brain to rebuild, let's say you had a stroke and you're missing your hippocampus. and you could actually rebuild it. It still has to wire up to your brain, specifically how your brain works. That's not going to work. It's like saying, well, here, if your transmission doesn't work in your car, well, I'll just put it on top of the roof, this one here. We'll see what happens. You've got to hook it up. So neuroscience moves pretty fast. So I'm not going to say, I mean, I want to say never. <laughs> But, and I'll probably still say never, but you never know. <laughs> never say never, as they say. The biggest thing about this, for our purposes, is that this has really helped us understand normal function. We get these case studies. These are things that we could not ethically or morally do with humans. Um, and we see, oh, look, there, are, there, are, there is evidence. Some of the first evidence for the two-store model of memory was HM. People said, oh, look, there's, a, there's even a, a physiological model here saying that we must have a two-store model of memory. Things like that. Questions about this? This was depressing, I'm sorry. The world is sad. I took a trip the other day Down the road, ten blocks from my
trip against my will and throw it all away. Thanks for listening to the lecture. Um, all of the audio is available, of course, on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you're using. Just search for da uh, Dr. Dave Broadbeck's uh, Psychology Lectures at Algoma University, which is the most ungainly title ever. Uh, these are released under a sh uh, um, Creative Commons copyright share like 3.0 Canada. Uh, you can't use these for commercial purposes. Um, you feel free to share them uh, and feel free to mash them up any way you want. But if you do that, that means I get to do the same thing with your stuff. Sort of like the GAU license. Um, I hope you learned something. But if you didn't, I, unless you're one of my students, I really don't care. Um, the music, by the way, for each uh, song, for each uh, uh, episode, <laughs> lecture, uh, is uh, available. They're all podcast, uh, like Podsafe music. So if you want to uh, find out about the bands, there's links on my website at people.aoc.ca slash broadback. Uh, if those links don't work, just contact me, and I'll find uh, I'll find out. Um, often I put links uh, actually in the uh, what I call them show notes or blog posts. So uh, you know, buy these people's music; they're they're making the stuff available out there. Uh, thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time.